welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. For our third episode celebrating the women's suffrage centennial this month, I'm speaking with Professor Evelyn Hammonds, chair of the Department of the History of Science at Harvard. Early in her career as a graduate student in physics at MIT, Professor Hammonds discovered more urgent questions about the lack of women, particularly women of color, in scientific disciplines. I wanted to ask her about her quest for answers and how what she found might inform many of the urgent questions we are still asking today. Here she is. Professor Evelyn Hammonds, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thank you, happy to be here. So first off, tell me the story of how you decided to become a physicist. As a young child, I was always very interested in science. I was the oldest of two girls, and my father had studied chemistry and math in college. And so he was always interested in scientific things. If I wanted a book, he would always want to buy me a science book. <laughs> that, was, that was what I had to do to get a book out of him. And um, so at an early age, I was very interested in science and engineering as well. As a kid, I just had all these different kinds of science kits. I had a chemistry set. I had a microscope. I had all kinds of building kit things. And it just spurred me an interest in wanting to understand how the world worked. As I got into high school, I found that I wasn't as interested in chemistry as much as I was in physics. I took all the physics classes I possibly could take in high school. And so it was sort of developing out of my personal interests and my dad's support. But also, I'm also a big sci-fi person. So one of my favorite shows, I'm a Trekkie. So I used to watch Classic Trek. And course, I was very course. intrigued by um, <laughs> Lieutenant Uhuru, who in Classic Trek was the only African-American on Classic Trek watching Trek and becoming a, a full-time Trekkie as much as I could really solidified my interest in science, in physics, in thinking about alternative futures, space travel, those kinds of things. So fast forward to college. Yes. You went to Spelman and then Georgia Tech. Yes. So what did you study there and what was that like? So I went to a program called the Dual Degree Program, uh, which was a program that had been established in the early 70s. It's a five-year program, so students who entered the program spent two and a half years at Spelman College or one of the other colleges in the Atlanta University Center. These are historically Black colleges, and Spelman is all Black women, one of the only historically Black colleges in the country. And then you spend two and a half years at Georgia Tech. So at the end of five years, you get two undergraduate degrees. So I studied physics at Spelman, uh, actually, mostly I studied physics at Morehouse because there was one physics department and, and Spelman College is right across the street from Morehouse College. And then when I went to Georgia Tech, I studied electrical engineering because a lot of what I liked in physics was electromagnetic theory, understanding 
more and more about how electricity is produced and how it behaves under certain kinds of conditions. And so joining my physics interest with electrical engineering seemed perfect to me. And also for my sophomore and junior year in college, I went to a summer program in New Jersey. It was the summer program for minorities and women at Bell Telephone Laboratories, which was the laboratory for AT&T at the time. It's the place where the transistor was developed. Really, for the first time, was able to immerse myself in physics work. We worked in labs that had state-of-the-art equipment. We lived together on the campus of Rutgers University in dorms. So we got to do physics all day long and talk physics all night, which I had never been able to do before. And it was really exciting and it really, really solidified my interest in physics. After college, you decide to get a PhD. So you go to MIT yes. studying physics. And how did your interests evolve there and why? Well, the reason I went to MIT was both because of my advisor, Bob Bergino, that I knew from the Bell Labs program, but also because Shirley Jackson who was the second African-American woman to get a PhD in physics in this country, actually had come down to Spelman and recruited me to come to MIT to study physics. And from my perspective, that was an easy decision. Why would I go anywhere else other than where the second Black woman had gone to study physics? In fact, at the time, we all thought she was the first African-American woman to get a PhD in physics, but actually there was someone else in a Midwestern school who we had not heard about at that time. So for me, there was no choice. If I could get into graduate school, I was going to go to MIT. And that's what I did. Shirley had only finished her doctorate at that time by a couple of years. And so a lot of people at MIT still knew her and remembered her. And so often I'd be walking down the halls and people would say, hi, Shirley, how are you? How's your work going? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it used to irritate me a great deal, but at some point I just started saying, it's fine. My work is going wonderfully well. And when I would see Shirley on occasion, she- Because she, you look nothing alike, right? <laughs> absolutely nothing alike. Absolutely oh, nothing God. alike. I have- it's terrible. You know, it's just, it was just ridiculous. But instead of getting angry, I would just finally just try to, you know, let it go. And I would tell Shirley, I would say, how's your work going? Because I tell everybody it's fine because they think I'm you. And she would say- <laughs> Oh, gee. And, you know, we would just sort of shake our heads in dismay about what a silly thing it was. But there was one other African-American woman in my class, but Mm -hmm. she hated the culture so much that she left in January of our first year, leaving me Uh. by myself with three African-American men. So it was one African-American woman, me, and three African-American men in our cohort of about 50 students. It was a difficult culture. Physics graduate school is difficult anyway, but for us, it was made very clear to us by some people that we didn't fit, that we didn't belong, that we were only there because of affirmative action, that we could never be successful. We were constantly fighting those attitudes. And indeed, at the end of my second year, the chair of the department said to me, well, Ms. Hammonds, you seem to have settled down. We didn't understand what you were really about your first two years because you had such a big chip on your shoulder. And for me, the first two years, I just felt like I was constantly fighting to have people take me seriously. And my advisor, Mm -hmm. Bob Bergeno, who subsequently became dean of science at MIT and then chancellor of UC Berkeley, he did everything he could to make me feel that I could do it, that I should do Mm -hmm. it. I should become a physicist, that I could become a physicist, and that he supported me. And as I just said earlier, he's been a friend and mentor since I was 19 years old. He recognized the difficult culture that there was. 
it's not that he was unaware of it at all. He wasn't trying to minimize it, but he also felt that I had to not be constantly reacting to the kinds of things that people would just say and to try to make me feel unwelcome. And I typically didn't, but it was very hard for me to learn how not to react because some of it was just so egregious. Mm. And also I think slowly but surely the kind of isolation, I mean, my three other male friends, we were all doing different kinds of physics. So we shared mm. in the classes and required classes that all graduate students had to take, we took classes together, but then we all sort of went in different directions. So we became kind of isolated from one another a little bit, mm. but they're also lifelong friends of mine too. So I still keep up with those guys as well. It was just a difficult time. It was very difficult for white people to believe that black people could yeah. do science and especially physics. It yeah. was just a very, very pervasive attitude in the field. Yeah. And I would imagine also being now the only African-American woman in that program. What were the differences or were there differences between the experience of the African-American men and your experience as an African-American woman in that program? Hmm. Uh Well, I think as an African-American woman, I carried the double burden, which has been referred to in the literature as the double bind of being a woman Mm -hmm. and an African-American in a field at the time where there was a lot of skepticism about the abilities of all women Mm -hmm. and people of color to actually do the work. It was like having two strikes against you. You're constantly having to prove yourself over and over and over again. At the same time, you're in a culture where on any given day, somebody might think you were a secretary or a janitor or anything but a graduate student in physics. So you had to live with that. And there were also personal issues. I mean, my family didn't really understand a lot of what I was going through. And And in our communities... My other friends, we often found that people just thought, why on earth would smart Black people try to study physics? There were so many other things that we could do that we were needed for. And so we were trying to carve a space out for ourselves to just be able to do our work and follow our passion and our interest Mm -hmm. and the questions that made us want to do science, especially physics in the first place. So it was very complicated. It was very difficult. And for me, after I finished my master's thesis, I decided to take a leave of absence because I really began to ask a lot of questions about why are there so few people of color in physics? Why are there so few women, all women, I mean, white women and women of color in science in Mm -hmm. general, in engineering, I'm looking around MIT, where are the women, what's going on? I knew lots of people were interested in science and engineering, lots of women who could do well in math, And yet they weren't there. And I really wanted to understand why. And my advisor was constantly saying to me, these aren't physics questions. Those are sociological questions. And I'd say, but you know, for me, they are physics questions because I need to understand why I'm being treated this way in this field. And all I have to do is show up and people have put question marks above my head. I think, why is she here? Uh, Why is there a black woman in the room? It's just, uh, it was amazing. And so I finished my master's thesis to my mentor, Bob's great dismay. I took a leave of absence. And during that time, I worked as an engineer. But I wasn't happy doing that. It wasn't fulfilling or terribly interesting to me, even though I worked on Mm -hmm. the first versions of Windows on three different kinds of machines, on IBM machines, on Microsoft machines, on other kinds of machines. I just didn't feel like I was getting at the kind of questions that I was 
concerned about. So that's when I applied to study the history of science, because I thought that the history of science was going to be the place where I could get the questions answered that were troubling me about the underrepresentation of people of color in science and engineering, especially in the United States. So that's why I switched fields and went into the history of science. I still sneak in the library sometimes and see if any of my work as a physics graduate student is still being cited. Sometimes it is. So that's kind of amazing when it happens. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a long time ago. It's a very old, very old paper. So I don't know why anybody's <laughs> reading them, but sometimes people do for some reason. Well, that says something about your work. Because I did physics for so long, I thought I would do history of physics. And also I would look at this whole question of the underrepresentation of women and minorities in American science. Well, it turns out those were two fields that there weren't a lot of people studying those fields. And I had no idea. You know, I've always sort of followed the questions that I'm interested in in my life rather than whether or not they're questions many, many other people are interested in. So when I got to Harvard, the whole sort of field of women in science and the history of women in science and subsequently the history of women and gender in science were Mm. just taking off. And also, I thought that there would probably be a lot of people of color interested in that kind of question. And it turns out there weren't. (laughs) So Mm. then I thought I was moving from physics, where I was one of the few Black people, and moving to history of science, where I was one of the few Black people. And also, Mm. history of physics turned out to be not as interesting to me because it was sort of like doing physics, except not doing it. I just thought, well, I'd rather be in the lab actually doing some physics than trying to figure this stuff out. And so I Mm -hmm. moved really away from doing the history of physics, which was a big loss to me, to I really wanted to understand the relationship between scientific developments, a particular societal context, sociopolitical context in which science is done, and understand the interaction between the two. Mm -hmm. So to try to understand the history of African-Americans' participation in American science, you have to understand a lot about the history of race in this country Mm -hmm. because it's connected Mm -hmm. to the fact that America is a racially stratified society and certain professions were close to African-Americans for so long. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you want to understand the history of women in science, you have to understand how women were excluded from getting advanced Mm -hmm. degrees in science. And you also Mm -hmm. have to, following that, understand why does gender matter in who Mm. gets to do science. So I knew I had to learn some African-American history. I had to learn Mm. history of women. I had to learn a lot about theories of gender and the emergence of gender as a category of analysis. So Mm. I started writing and researching about the history of African-American women who had participated in science in the early 20th century. Then I started writing about, at the time, the AIDS epidemic had exploded. So I was interested in Mm. how epidemiologists and public health people talked about who was actually getting sick from AIDS and how Mm -hmm. people of color were being marginalized in those discussions and in the demographics and in the analyses of the epidemic. Then I did my PhD on the history of the control of diphtheria in New York City. Mm -hmm. You don't know about diphtheria except for the fact that you got vaccinated for it when you were a kid before you had to go to school. (laughs) Well, I studied how that whole business of vaccination came to be.
You were a consultant to Margot Shetterly, mm -hmm. the author of Hidden Figures, yes. which is a book about black women mathematicians right. who were pivotal during the space race in the early days of NASA. Yes. Why do you think so few people are familiar with the story? Because people don't write about black people doing science. <laughs> It, I mean, it's really, it, it really is that simple a point mm -hmm. that there are very, very few detailed biographies of African-American scientists. Margot's story starts around the end of World War II or so. Mm -hmm. And so people just didn't realize that there were African-Americans working as scientists and engineers in government laboratories like NASA. And the film, I think, does a wonderful job, which is based on the book, of showing how women in particular, white women and African-American women, were also relegated to sideline positions as computers mm -hmm. themselves. Women were computers, mm -hmm. doing lots of mm -hmm. calculations if they had some talent in math, but not being able to rise through the ranks to become engineers easily or to become PhD mm -hmm. scientists easily. And that's yeah. because of the longstanding prejudice in scientific fields against people who are of color and who are women. And mm -hmm. so the presumption was there couldn't have possibly been any black people working at NASA, particularly working on such important projects as the one Katherine Johnson worked on, who worked on the orbital issues related to John Glenn's flight. But I knew about this because I've been studying the history of African-American women yeah. in science and engineering. And so I knew that there were more than a few African-American women who had the talent to do very high-level mathematics but did not have the opportunity to do it in organizations where they were likely to be recognized and valued. In the early days, certainly in the early 20th century, a lot of women did their scientific work. And when they published, they only used their initials. So if you're looking through, you wouldn't necessarily know that there were women. And when I did wow. my first physics papers that I did, I signed it E.M. Mm -hmm. e. Hammonds. So if you didn't know that E.M. Hammonds was wow. Evelyn Hammonds who worked for Bob Bergino, you didn't know I was an mm -hmm. African-American woman. Latinos, Latinas were a little bit more visible because they would often have Spanish <laughs> surnames, right? But for African-Americans, that wasn't the case. And for a lot of women, that wasn't the case. So it was hard to find them in the literature, number one. And number two, the assumption was uh, for many historians of science or biographers, there was no point in looking because they didn't believe that people had done anything of note mm. in science. And so that's why people were surprised about the story of Hidden Figures and particularly Katherine Johnson. Margot Shetterly, I think, did an absolutely wonderful job on that story, making it mm -hmm. interesting and compelling and really showing how the talent of these women was simply being ignored. If anybody can think about it right now in the midst of a pandemic, we can't afford to lose talented people who can do science. We simply cannot Absolutely. afford, we need everybody who can think at the highest levels in these fields to be working to do things like create new vaccines, solve really complicated problems. There's a particular series of scenes in Hidden Figures mm -hmm. that I thought were really powerful and very telling, where Catherine was forced to use a bathroom mm -hmm. in a completely different building yes. because there was no bathroom for colored women in her building. So yep. she had to run all the way across a mile campus. Away. 
in heels yes. and a skirt yes. because that was the dress code. Right. So every time she had to use the bathroom, she had to run. And then she would come back and people would be asking, where have you been? Why are you slacking on your job? It was just really telling to me. I mean, there were a lot of things in the movie that were really powerful, but... Yeah. It just says that the yeah. sex discrimination in science and engineering was built into the buildings, right? So yeah. you can even look Talk about institutional. This. Right, exactly. <laughs> Racism, it's real, yeah. real, real hard. It's hardwired in the institution. It's spaces. Right. So even when I started MIT in 76 or so, yeah, mm. MIT at the time, there were rare buildings that had a women's bathroom on every floor. The older yeah. buildings did not. You did have to walk a while to get to, not a mile, as Katherine Johnson mm, had to yeah. do, and that may have been slightly exaggerated for effect. But of course there are male bathrooms on every floor. There were not female bathrooms on every floor because they didn't expect it to be a world where there were that many females, period. Yeah. And so then you compound that with what was the experience at NASA, which was segregated. Not only did they not expect there to be many women who would need the bathrooms, they didn't expect there to be many women of color who needed the bathrooms. Yeah. So therefore, that was built into the space itself. That was the conception of the architects. Why on earth would you have more than one bathroom every mile that women of color could use? Because you didn't expect there to be very many there at any given time. So I think that did a wonderful job, the way they did that scene. It did a great, great job of showing how sex discrimination and race discrimination is built into the literal buildings, the infrastructure mm -hmm. of places where science and engineering gets done. Yeah, obviously, this is a way in which there are some parallels between your experience in academics and those of the women computers, the yes. hidden figures, yes, like Katherine sure. Johnson. Were there other ways that your experience, you think, paralleled theirs? One thing that's very compelling to me is when she's actually, when Katherine Johnson is actually up on the ladder, working through the set of equations that turn mm. out to be correct mm -hmm. uh, in predicting what kind of orbits they had to predict and plan for, for that particular space flight, and that nobody mm. else knew how to do it. Yeah. Her manager was still mm -hmm. not making coffee every day, trying mm -hmm. to take credit for her work, trying to keep her out of certain discussions and meetings, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. He was making it very clear. He did not think she should be there because she was an African-American woman. In the movie, they give us the Kevin Costner guy who probably didn't want her there either. But he's mm -hmm. the pragmatic guy. He says, whoever can make this thing work, I want this person to work here. I want this person to be mm -hmm. here. He's presented as less overtly prejudiced. And certainly mm -hmm. there were people like that in engineering mm -hmm. companies and labs and scientific labs around the country. Everybody wasn't a racist. But the structures were there such that it was easy for a person like Katherine Johnson to be marginalized and her work not to be taken seriously. She was at a confluence of time where her, her most important manager really was under the gun to get that problem solved. And the kind of guy who said, I'm going to go with the person who can get this work done. And he had confidence in her abilities. If he hadn't had confidence in her abilities, she would have had an even more difficult time. But at the end of the story, and of course, because it's a Hollywood movie, they're going to make it so, yeah. yeah, finally the guys come around and they realize she's really smart and she knows how to do it. A lot of times that didn't happen. A lot of times people did not come around. 
a lot of times people still raise a lot of um, negative questions about her capacities, the capacities of a woman of color in science. Recently in Science Magazine, an African-American woman who's a chair of a science department wrote an uh, op-ed and talked about the ways in which she was treated over the course of her career to becoming a chair of a major science department at a major university in this country. Similar kinds of things happened to her and similar questions raised about her capacity to do the work. That's what women of color, African-American women in particular in science share. From my time over um, now a 40-year-long career to students I meet right now, because there's still too few students, women of color, who are in the quote-unquote pipeline, which is not a word I like to use, studying science at, at a very high level. There's still only probably in any major university, one or two black women. She might find herself the only black woman science student in her building. She might find herself mm -hmm. having to work in study groups with white men who still question her ability to do the work. And I meet students like this all the time. The attitudes mm -hmm. and the culture haven't changed as much as they absolutely have to. And what we're all hoping for in this moment of great reckoning in the U.S. about race, that this would be a moment when we can push through and get people to pay attention to these issues more seriously so mm -hmm. that it comes a time when a black woman who wants to study physics, that people don't raise their eyes and go, what? You can't be a black woman and a physicist. We'd like to see that question put away once and for all. How have you seen Harvard evolve over the course of your career? And how have you participated in that evolution? When I went into the history of science at Harvard, I studied with Barbara Rosencrantz, who was a professor of the history of science. She studied a history of medicine and public health. And she was the only woman faculty member in the history of science. One of her close colleagues was a biologist, Ruth Hubbard who I also studied with, who taught a course on the biology of women. And they were two of the mm -hmm. first women in science and history of science at Harvard who had became full professors. And they were my mm -hmm. teachers. And that's when I went in yeah. as a graduate student. And then over the course of time that I've been involved with, with Harvard since the mid eighties to the present, a great deal has changed. We have many, many more women faculty. We have a few more women of color in the sciences, not nearly enough. There's still far too few in those fields. But in the humanities and the social sciences, the world has completely changed. There are lots of women in the Department of the History of Science. We now have, oh my goodness, probably half of our faculty are women, which is, oh, wow. which is a big change in a generation or so. And, and that has come about because of external forces to Harvard. Harvard was slow to tenure women, even in the 80s when lots of schools, lots of the Ivies and Research One universities were tenuring women. But Harvard was not a leader in this at all, but slowly but surely has become one. And certainly there have been, as I said, external pushes and internal pushes. So internally, there were committees on women who got together and pushed for greater numbers of women to be hired. From the outside, there's a lot of organizations of women scientists, engineers, social scientists, historians who had were pushing for the hiring and promotion of more women. We've had our first African-American woman chair of Harvard History Department, which when I started taking history courses when I came in the 80s, 
was unheard of that you would have the mm -hmm. chair of Harvard History Department would have been a woman. And certainly mm -hmm. that it would have been an African-American woman. And her name is Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. And Evelyn Hig Brooks Higginbotham is also a winner of the National Humanities Medal that was awarded to her mm -hmm. by President Obama. She's a very, very yeah. distinguished person. And so that is really a change. So now you have a woman of color chair of anthropology. You have me in history of science. You had Evelyn, who's just finishing her term as chair of the history department. You have a Latina who is the chair of the English department. These things were unheard of a generation ago. And it is because of the, the world changed outside of Harvard and Harvard had to respond to those changes internally. And then of course, a big piece that I was involved in is after President Larry Summers made his remarks about women being able to do math and set off an international incident about that. And then he established two task forces, one on women faculty, one on women in science and engineering, and we put together a set of recommendations in 13 weeks, created a office of faculty development and diversity at the level of vice provost, which had never existed before. So I was the first senior vice provost for faculty development and diversity at Harvard, where we just started plowing through all kinds of policies and practices that we had identified as hindering the progress and the promotion of women across the university. And that work continues. Each school now has people who are dedicated to ensuring that searches are done properly and widely, mm -hmm. and women are up for positions in, at every level. They're mm -hmm. advertised widely. We have more support for childcare. We have more support for women taking leave because of childcare responsibilities. We have four African-American women deans, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, School of Public Health, Graduate School of Education, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Nobody would have believed that many years ago. We are living in this strange moment right now. We have coronavirus, but also we've had a few months that have been fraught with tragedy and have infused us with a new sense of urgency for change. And so now the activism surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement is reaching academia. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic this new energy is going to spawn meaningful change? And what would that change look like? I'm, I'm optimistic right now. It's a very important, significant moment in the history of our country to have this reckoning about race and institutional and systemic racism and white supremacy in our country, long, long overdue, coming from the ground up as well as the streets, as well as from the highest levels of institutions in America. I think we have to go through this. And I do hope that it's not just a moment. I do hope that everything that has been made visible right now, I hope that people don't forget. I'm hopeful that this may be a moment where we're going to move with great commitment and courage to a deeper examination of racism and white supremacy and make some changes that will be fundamental and lasting. But we have had moments like this before. And resistance to change in American society, as a, speaking as a historian, is very strong. So we'll see. And for me, I, I look at my 17-year-old son and I say, you got to be involved in this because this is about your future. And I'm happy to keep walking with you. Uh, we fought mm -hmm. our fight as my generation, but we're going to have to keep fighting for a while. This is not a time for everybody to stop and say, yeah, we got there. No, we're not there. 
we have a lot of work mm-hmm. to do. So I'm hopeful that we can have cross-generational collaborations and coalitions and can have a lot of allies. And I love seeing the diversity of people who are out in the streets. So there are a lot of things to be hopeful for, but I'm also old enough to kind of worry from time to time whether or not we'll be able to achieve what we want to achieve. Do you have some specific examples of within academia, Mm -hmm. what would meaningful change look like? So meaningful change would look like increasing the diversity of the faculty across this country in major academic institutions. Right now, the undergraduate and graduate populations, student populations, are more diverse than the faculty. And that produces all kinds of tensions and problems and unexamined questions and different perspectives that are not valued and made useful for for the kinds of problems that we need to solve. But also in the midst of a financial crisis, as well as Mm -hmm. the crisis that's been caused by the presence of a pandemic, universities are shrinking a little bit because of the pressures on them in the face of trying to do work in the midst of a pandemic, which is not necessarily going to be good for diversifying the faculty if people aren't hiring that many faculty. Mm -hmm. So we still have a very diverse undergraduate and graduate school population, but we haven't gotten there yet in terms of the faculty. And that has just got to be a major priority that we cannot lose, even though we're in a financially difficult times. So that to me is the most important thing. And once you have a more diverse faculty, you'll have a more diverse curriculum, you'll have more diverse research, which will produce outcomes and solutions to longstanding problems that have been ignored. How do you think we can best use this moment to encourage and nurture Black women in science? So that's, that's a great question, because right now, a lot of the Black women I know in science are feeling pretty discouraged um, because of the, the, the way the scab has been ripped off the wounds of the past with respect to really anti-Black biases. And so if you're the only Black woman in your department right now in a science department, and people are struggling with trying to come to terms with the history that they don't know, hadn't realized how bad it was for people. It, 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 it's a difficult moment. You're trying to decide, do I need to keep doing this work as a scientist? Maybe I should go sell real estate. I mean, this culture is so intense and has been so blind to issues of diversity for so long. And now people are coming saying, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry you feel so badly. What can I do to help you? And you say, get some more people of color in here. That's what you can do. We're at an inflection point. We're at an inflection point. So my concern and the women of color that I'm in conversation with right now in the scientific, technical, and medical fields, I'm saying we have to stay connected to one another. We have to build stronger networks among us and between us. We should take care of our friends and colleagues who are isolated in certain institutions, in certain departments, in certain laboratories. And we have to talk to one another and we have to keep supporting one another in our interest in science and in the scientific world at a moment when our talents are needed so much. But we have to hold on to each other right now. So that's what we're trying to do. Professor Evelyn Hammonds, thank you so much for being here today. This has been just a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. 
Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to Evelyn Hammonds and the History of Science Department for their wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.